on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Coming up next, America Can We Talk with your host, Debbie Georgianos. And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgianos. I am so glad to be back in our studios and doing regular shows here in Dallas after doing remote shows for quite a bit over the summer. Great to be in studio. Great thanks to Real News PR and Real News Communication Network that made it possible for me to do my show no matter where I was. I'm so grateful for that. Also want to thank Krista Branch. If you love my intro music, then you are a wise person. It's a great, great song. Krista Branch, she sings, I am America. The lyrics are spectacular. They really lay out the idea that we are America. We the people are the ones who get involved, care, get uh, you know, run for office, support policies that, that do the work of keeping America sane and safe and free. So Krista Branch music. I asked her years ago, may I use that song? And she said, yes, so long as you periodically give me credit. So I do that. Krista Branch, great singer. Okay, in today's show, we're going to talk about a criminal referral of Smartmatic and why it matters. And then Tommy Waller of the Center for Security Policy will be joining me to talk about grid security, a huge issue, and many more issues. Pirate Money, a book, and The Texas House Failed the People. And finally, Shameless Backfiring Leftist Belligerence. I, I'll enjoy making up that long title. Basically, Hunter Hillary and the Trump Show Trials. I really plan to get all that in this next hour. So as my mother used to say, listen fast. On the first five today, I want to talk about something that really has uh, came to people's attention just in the last maybe 48 hours. The, the criminal referral of Smartmatic and why it matters. If you recognize that name, Smartmatic, that is the company originating years ago in Venezuela, and it was essentially they create computer software or operating systems, and those operating systems run election machines. They are the inside of the electronic voting machines. So Patrick Byrne, who is the founder of Overstock and has been a central political figure in uh, at the close of the Trump presidency in 2020 and has been central uh, since that time talking about election integrity and not just the 2020 election, but the fallibility of voting machines. He joined me on the show like four weeks, three or four weeks ago, fairly recently, did a whole hour interview with Patrick Byrne about what he understood really happened uh, at the close of the Trump presidency and with all these machines. But the big news is just amazing big news and I tried to grab his clip, and I can't. It's, it's in a membership-protected thing, so I couldn't get to it. I'm going to summarize what he is talking about. There are a couple media reports out about it, uh, which I'll also share with you. But the gist of it is this. In Florida, the Department of Justice, so the federal government, Department of Justice, has issued a referral. And a referral is just, you know, it's a fancy legal term. basically means 
and after investigation, a suggestion that somebody better really investigate this. Now, CNN is reporting it's already an indictment, so that would be the next step. A referral happens after investigation. Congress will often say, oh, we're, we're going to refer this to the Department of Justice because after we've investigated, we found X, Y, Z. So whether it's a referral or an actual indictment, as CNN is claiming, the gist is that the Department of Justice is claiming that Smartmatic software, the Smartmatic company that provides the software, not just for Dominion voting machines, but for most of the major voting machines used in America, they indicted Smartmatic and individual officials on the charge that in 2016, Smartmatic accepted a bribe, took money from a Filipino election official to manipulate the outcome of the 2016 election, to use their software to manipulate the outcome, to, change, to cheat, to cheat the outcome, to rig the election in 2016. So Patrick Byrne was, of course, extremely excited about this because much of what's happened with all the claims of election fraud or the, the reports that the electronic voting machines were you know, somehow rigged or at least are hackable, the Department of Justice has been adamant and stalwart just saying nothing like that happens. This is crazy. This has never occurred. And, and in fact, as we sit here today, numerous attorneys, friends of mine, attorneys are under indictment for even suggesting that there has been, and put, giving voice to the idea that there has been election fraud that occurred in 2020 elections at, at the hands of the electronic voting machines. Lawyers, in fact, our own attorney general here in Texas, Ken Paxton, is he's had our state bar going after him for allegedly filing a frivolous lawsuit because he's talking about the electronic voting machines, the potential for fraud. Just even filing a lawsuit, acting like a lawyer, filing a lawsuit has brought the attention of state bars as well as criminal prosecution. So back to what the, is happening in Florida. This indictment is basically saying that Smartmatic got the contract, as they have many other elections, to run the 2016 Philippine presidential election and that they were paid, obviously, by the Philippine government to do that election. You know, to, to they were contracted. They, there was a contract. But in addition, an extra payment was made, says the allegation. A payment was made, a large payment made, from the government to Smartmatic uh, to rig the election, to, to change the outcome to what that, that um, official apparently wanted, and that a kickback occurred. So some of the extra money paid by the government to Smartmatic was, again, turned back around to this individual in uh, the Filipino government. Now, of course, everyone involved is denying it, putting statements out, now this happened. But the real relevance is this. In America, there has been great concern by many people, by millions of Americans, that our electronic voting machines are not only hackable, meaning you can remotely hack in, as has been proven many times, you can remotely hack in, you can change information, you can change stored data. The hackability of a computer is hardly disputable when you look at all of the claims, all of the events have occurred in America in recent history, uh, major league national level federal government agencies who've been hacked and people, entities that should have the most secure, secure as possible system to protect their computer data, their software, their information, their data hacked. I mean, it has happened to every major federal agency 
th that there is. The hacks occur, they occur in private industry. So hackability is not deniable if you're talking about computers. So everything electronic in elections is hackable. But this is talking about rigging. This is talking about setting up ahead of time money being paid so that the people who control the Smartmatic software can make an outcome that the person who's paying them wants them to have. Now, it's only at this point, it's either a referral or maybe it's an indictment, but it is an admission by a senior official of the Department of Justice that these machines, this softmatic, excuse me, Smartmatic software is manipulable and can be used to change election outcomes. Often you'll hear people say, in fact, Smartmatic puts out statements frequently saying, but there's only one system in all of the United States of America, one county in California, only ones who even use this software anymore. But the trick is, as explained by Patrick Byrne, and by the way, if you don't subscribe to Patrick Byrne on Locals.com, I urge you to do that. Locals.com is the website he, he uses regularly to put information out. You can subscribe and hear, the, hear his lengthy videos yourself on this subject. But one defense often put out by Smartmatic is, well, there's just one little county in California that we even use this software. The trick is, explains Patrick Byrne, that all that has to happen when this software, which was developed originally in Venezuela, uh, was, was, according to the allegations, used in Venezuela, um, and then moved over to the U.S. in order to get a, become a Delaware corporation, and it was intentionally set up to be riggable. In fact, Byrne reports that in California, when they first looked at Smartmatic um, operating system software, they, the state of California, hired nine professors, like actual experts from top universities, just say, look at this software, what do you think? And the short story after they reviewed all the software was, this is junk. Not only is it junk, it's not reliable, it could be rigged. In fact, say, said they, it almost looks like it was created to be riggable, to, with that propensity, that, that potential. So California, at least originally, wouldn't use this. Well, all that happens when this software is spread around among companies all over within the, the electronic voting machine industry, if you change an iota, change something little and give it a new name, then you can say, well, we're not using Smartmatic. Oh, that's old stuff. We're not using Smartmatic software. Patrick Byrne's allegation is all this software, it's the same dang thing. Slight changes, change the name, same system, same hackability. And there's much more to this story, but I want to kind of wrap up the first five by saying, I agree with Patrick Byrne. This is monumental that this has been, the DOJ is now acknowledging this is a problem, and they are apparently going to actually go after these Smartmatic officials. Uh, CNN tries to tamp down the story and say, oh, it's just about a bribery. The whole issue is bribery, that, you know, some government official took some money back from Smartmatic. But the question is, why was he taking money back? Why was Smartmatic giving him money back? And that is really the core of the bribery charge. The, the bribery charge is the money flowing back and forth. The election interference is the question of was the money used? Was it changing hands in order to convince Smartmatic or to so Smartmatic would go along with a plan to manipulate the outcome of the election, which is this allegation arising out of the Department of Justice in Florida. And that, my very fine friends, is my first five, even though it's longer than five. So now we're turning and talking to, we have a guest in studio today. I love, uh, this is just a great organization. I mentioned them many times to you. We've had many experts on the show from the Center for Security Policy. Frank Gaffney, its founder, has joined me on the show, uh, I don't even know how many times, many times, uh, spoken at my summits. Uh, he's just an extraordinary national security expert. And Frank Gaffney has passed along the reins, passed along the uh, 
the uh, role of president and CEO of Center for Security Policy, and that has been taken over by our guest today, Tommy Waller. Um, he is a uh, he's retired from the military, a former lieutenant colonel in the military, and we are going to talk about the grid, um, which is a huge national security issue, and then we'll get into some other issues too. So welcome to the show, Tommy Waller. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hi there, good to see you, sir. Okay, so I didn't do a whole lot of introduction of your background, but I do think it. You should, we should we should talk a bit more about your background and how you got um, involved. Eventually, got involved in working with the um, Center for Security Policy. But first, if you would tell us about your military background, like what, what did you do in the military, and thank you for your service. Sure. Well, Debbie, thank you for mentioning the service, and I think it'll become clear through the conversation that nothing I ever did in uniform would actually make a difference in the day-to-day -day survival of the American people, the way that uh, those who keep the lights on in this country. You know, so we'll probably get into some topics uh, about the grid and about the electric utility industry, uh, and I just want to thank them for their service to keep the lights on because we, we can't live without electricity. But, yeah, just to get to your question, it, it was a calling, um, really, since I can remember, to, to serve in the military. And... I had the opportunity at the age of 18 to take an oath on my birthday, my 18th birthday, uh, swore an oath to the, defend the, the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it's uh, been a blessing that I've been able to continue to do that, working for the Center for Security Policy. Uh, and so, you know, happy to talk a little bit about some of what I did in the military and also why I'm no longer able to serve uh, in uniform. I do want to hear about the no longer able to serve in uniform. I do want to, I, I can do a quicker summary because you are like many military people, very humble and don't like to tout your own service, but I would like to. So he joined the Marine Corps in 1998, um, an NROTC scholarship, commissioned in 2002, trained as an infantry officer, conducted multiple deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq through 2006. These are unfriendly places, Afghanistan and Iraq through 2006. During the, these combat tours, he served as an infantry battalion, as part of a Marine Expeditionary Unit, MEU, and as a reconnaissance platoon commander for 2nd Recon Battalion. He also accepted orders in 2007 to Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia, where he completed the Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School and was the first recipient of the Captain Robert M. Secker Scholarship to the Wharton School of Business. So you have... So you did go ahead and attend Wharton School of Business? It was just executive education. It wasn't a whole, not an MBA, but it was a privilege. I mean, and, you know, the, the man who gave his life for this country, Robert Sashir, uh, had set up a training program between the Wharton School and the United States Marine Corps Officer Candidate School to teach uh, the Wharton MBA students about leadership and about character and ethics and, and the challenges of, of, you know, being a military officer. And he, uh, he unfortunately was killed uh, on, a, on a combat deployment overseas. And so the Wharton School decided to name a scholarship in his, you know, in his remembrance. And so the first time that they issued that scholarship, I was blessed to, to be the recipient and uh, to be able to attend some executive education. But he's really the person uh, who I would credit with making that possible. All right, and thank you for giving him that recognition. So to, I, actually, let's just leap to why you are no longer in the military before we talk about your role at San Francisco Security Policy. So, because sure. it's a great story for people to know. Sure, so I was very privileged to have the opportunity to serve. Uh, so my last 10 years were in the reserves, right? And my, I was blessed to have a civilian job with the Center for Security Policy. 
And um, so my last job is I was uh, the commander of the Reserve Force Recon Company in the Marines. Just an absolute privilege, just a bunch of awesome, just studs, patriots. And, uh, and this was, you know, during the period during which COVID uh, was thrust upon us by the, by the communist, you know, yes, Chinese. Yes, by the CCP, right? yes. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was also the period during which uh, a new presidential administration came in and began to implement uh, some very significant policy changes, one of which was uh, the, the COVID vaccine mandate. And um, I uh, did, you know, again, having had the privilege to work for a nonprofit whose job it is to do unconstrained analysis on threats and to research this, I did, I researched it significantly and I, I came to conclude that what I was being told to do as an officer would have violated the law in that I, it, they were wanting us to force onto our subordinates a requirement for them to take an emergency use authorized vaccine. Uh, and, the, and the law says you can only compel a service member to do that with an FDA approved vaccine. There was no such thing available. And that was a litmus test. I think it was designed to be a litmus test. And so uh, set aside all of the potential health issues, which there are many, uh, but just the, the moral, ethical, and legal implications of that, uh, it was something that I wouldn't do. And I was warned, uh, you know, I, at least one officer above me in the chain of command who cared, he said, look, Tommy, this is political, so you better tread very carefully. Uh, you'll be crushed like an ant, you know, and I was very fortunate that it could have been a lot worse. I mean, I could have been court-martialed or or, you know, relieved of command, for example, I wasn't being disrespectful at all. I provided a religious accommodation request. I made sure mine was the first one that went in. It was very well researched. And, uh, you know, a credit to my employer, the Center for Security Policy, gave me company time to do the research to be able to try to explain to the U.S. military the pitfalls of this mandate. And it went and it fell on deaf ears. And uh, so I was blessed. They allowed me to change command uh, to, the, to the next commander. And then within hours, they passed the guidance that any unvaccinated commander would be immediately relieved. And so I was, you know, preserved from any sort of disciplinary action, uh, but then I found myself in a spot where I, there would be no one to accept me. I couldn't, um, there was no unit that would accept an unvaccinated officer uh, at the time. And so... What year was this? Excuse me. So this is 2021. October okay. is when I changed command. Uh, you know, earlier last year in spring 2002, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for word uh, on my request for a religious accommodation. The first one was denied. They denied it. A, a lot of them blanket denials. They did it actually on the Marine Corps birthday, which I think is to inflict more of a moral injury against the service yes. members. Um, the method by which they enforced it, particularly on the young Marines, was absolutely brutal. Uh, they tried to punish them as much as possible. Uh, but I had made an appeal uh, with the commandant, and I was waiting and waiting. And, uh, you know, I, I had to get a new ID card. I took my family to base um, to, to get a new ID. And as they were issuing it, you know, I had my family dressed in their Sunday's best, uh, hoping to bring them on, on base to, to go to the memorial for the fallen Marines. Um, and we were denied access. We were, were not allowed on base uh, that day. And so that was, uh, that was the last time I ever approached a U.S. Marine Corps installation and the last time I ever talked to a Marine uh, in uniform uh, in that capacity. And so, you know, when Frank, uh, Frank Gaffney, the founder of this nonprofit, uh, when he asked me, he said, look, you know, I, I've run this for 35 years. I need someone to, 
to run it for the next 35 years. What an honor, you know, and I had to make a decision. And I just knew that there was no way that I could keep playing these games uh, with the Marine Corps and, and be asked to, to be in charge of such an Im immensely important job. And so, so I prayed about it. And uh, I was told, you know, when you submit for retirement, it said it takes like three to four months. You know, you have to submit the paperwork, and it takes a long time. I've never seen paperwork work so fast. I mean, I submitted for retirement, and within like two weeks, I had a whole package signed by President Biden. Uh, so there was definitely an, an effort to, to purge the force. It is so disappointing. And obviously, this was, again, this is 2022 when you were finally fully relieved. Is that correct? Fully done? Right, right. Yeah. Um, that's when I uh, I filed my paperwork in at the end of 2022, and I officially retired in uh, on March 1st of 2023 this year. Um, no ceremony, nothing to celebrate, uh, just completion of you know 20 years, 20 plus years of honorable service. And honorable, it is an honorable to stand up for yourself too, and and for your uh, the people who were under you, your men under you. You know, it's amazing because since, uh, from the time we, this isn't our topic today, but from the time sure. this mandate first came along and it was not FDA approved, and all the reasons that you uncovered, so much more evidence has accrued about the uh, lethality, the danger, the side effects of this and follow-up booster shots, and yet. We haven't seen a shift yet. I know we're going to go on. This is our topic today. No, it's I was fun. Just, this is very just, important. Just, just listening to you, you think about, well, in most avenues of life, if you get new information, you adjust. If they tell you, oh, it turns out that, you know, these two medications don't work together, so if you do this, don't do that. Or it turns out there's a bad side effect. With Medicine tends to go, oh, okay, let's quick adjust because now we have a new fact. Nothing in the real world seems to be adjusting to the reality, the facts that are now being exposed. At this point, it's thousands of doctors in America and around the world trying to say the content of these vaccines, this mRNA, is alarming, is dangerous, the side effects are not known, we shouldn't be forcing it, and beside that, COVID isn't so bad for almost everyone, and yet we don't see an adjustment from the military's attitude or really from the government's. It's, it's I mean, it, it seems to me it implies the political nature of the entire um, agenda. That's right. Yeah. Now, there wasn't any self-adjustment. I mean, think about the, the reason why the mandate eventually, you know, stopped was because Congress forced the military to stop. All the officers that orchestrated that, they're all still there. I mean, some of them have retired. None of them have, not a single one has been held responsible or accountable. And it's important to know, I mean, I, I'm, I am blessed that, you know, my discharge was an honorable one. There are many thousands of service members who uh, the military did everything they could to strip them of their honorable characterization. I'll give you an example in the Marines, right? So uh, under, the, um, under the leadership, if you want to call it that, of General Berger, the commandant at the time, the United States Marine Corps decided for those Marines that were going to be separated because of their refusal to take this experimental vaccine, if you want to call it that, what they decided was, you know, there, there's a certain code that's assigned to your separation. It's like an administrative code, right? And the Uniform Code of Military Justice gives you lots of different options. And so the two most appropriate options would have been, you know, refusing medical treatment or refusing inoculation. And the Marine Corps chose commission of a serious offense. That's a misconduct oh. code. That's the same code you would use if a Marine raped somebody, yeah. right? And what that did is it allowed them to strip as many benefits as they could from those young Marines. And, and they did it brutally. And so um, it's something that uh, at some point, if, if America ever wants to regain, you know, uh, um, 
trust and confidence in its in its military, it's going to have to seek out those officers that orchestrated that and hold them accountable. A- Amen. Absolutely. We could talk more about this, but I do want to turn to, I know one reason you've been visiting Dallas is that, I mean, are you based in the Washington, D.C.? Are, are you still based right. in, are you based in Washington now? So we have um, a headquarters in Washington, yeah. D.C. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I would say that we, uh, so we operate decentralized. Yeah. And um, we don't put all of our eggs in, under one roof in one basket. That's probably wise these days. Well, I was going to say, I remember years ago when I first heard in Texas, uh, I heard someone talking about the grid, the national security grid, as a as a safety thing, as, as a, a national security concern. And honestly, I had never thought about my whole life until I went to a presentation. It didn't happen to be by Center for Security Policy or some other group, but they were talking about the danger of the grid. Now, your organization, uh, of the grid being attacked or, or right. failing, even failing naturally or from a natural right. occurrence. But I, your organization, Center for Security Policy, does endless, brilliant work on all sorts of national security issues like what China is doing and North Korea is doing and Iran and Iraq and all of these uh, threats to America, potential threats to America. But they now have focus, along with another affiliated group, on the grid as a national security issue. I'd love to just talk, how do you, how does that fit in with everything that Center for Security Policy does? Well, so to Frank Gaffney's credit, you know, he he has long worried about the U.S. electric grid. I mean, we, we can't survive without it. I mean, think about just the, the consequences of losing electric power. And he knew about things like nuclear electromagnetic pulse before they were ever unclassified. And he couldn't talk about them, but he knew about these these threats. And so, you know, he he had been working for years, for decades, uh, concerned about this. The the organization, our Center for Security Policy, created the Secure the Grid Coalition in 2014 as a coalition to address this. And Frank asked me shortly after I was hired uh, at the center. That's a good story, too. I don't know. We don't have time for the whole thing. But, I mean, really uh, a total God story. I mean, I I had left active duty, felt called to do so, didn't really know what for, was bouncing around between different jobs and the day i finally gave it up uh just truly prayerfully just gave it up i got a call six hours later about a job i didn't even apply for at the center and uh (laughs) and so frank asked me um back in 2015 if i would take over this nationwide secure the grid coalition which i did and so i've kind of been living and breathing breathing the the that issue day on you know day on stay on for for almost a decade I love that. And I will mention for our listeners, so there is a national grid that is for the rest of America, um, and maybe more than one may hear that moment. But Texas has, this is one reason it's a particular issue to Texas, Texas has its own grid. It may, the grid may expand slightly beyond the Texas uh, borders, but it's basically, we have our own security grid because we're like that in Texas. You know, we like to take care of ourselves. But on a serious note, this has been viewed by many people as a great opportunity to show what does it take to secure the grid? What has to happen? And, and it can be like a, a model for the nation if Texas figures it out, and then the national uh, you know, big grid that will obviously be a bigger issue can follow suit or learn from what we've been doing. So I don't know, have you been sure. in Texas? Have you been working with our legislature about the grid? Yeah, tech, when, look, when Frank sat me down and he talked to me about electromagnetic pulse and he talked to me about the grid coalition, he said, hey, you know, I need you to take this over. He said, Texas is your number one place to go. Oh, good. Okay. And yeah. so that's what that's really uh, has been the primary focus. And so from day one, and I, I don't know how many people know this story, but uh, I'm sure you've probably talked to or had maybe Senator Bob Hall 
many times. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. so here's a good story for you that your listeners and your viewers might might like to hear. Frank gives me this new mission. Okay, you gotta work the Grid Coalition. You gotta Texas first. Okay, I don't know hardly anybody in Texas at the time. And uh, so, but I, there was a lady, Tracy Bradford, you may know her. She, Very well. Uh, she, Tracy said, hey, well, look, why don't you come during the inauguration? This was the inauguration of Governor Abbott, right? It's how many years ago it was. He, he gets one and, every uh, four years, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so this is the first one. And so, you know, um, I call up Dr. Peter Pry, Peter Vincent Pry, who was one of the nation's leading experts on EMP. Say, hey, listen, uh, Peter, I need you to come with me to Austin, Texas, so we can try to go start educating legislators. And he's like, okay, well, what's the plan? Peter, I, I can't tell you that I have much of a plan yet. I've been praying about it, but I don't really know anybody. And he's like, so you're gonna, you want me to fly there without you having a plan? Yes, sir, but I've been praying about it, right? So I pick him up at the airport in Austin, and he turns to me in the car and he says, so what's the plan? I said, Peter, I, again, I, I don't have an exact plan because I don't know anybody yet, uh, but I've been praying about it, right? And he now at this point, he's kind of just like getting frustrated, right? With, you know, waste my time here, you know? And so we go into the Capitol, and you know, the gold elevator doors, you know, so they, those gold elevator doors open up and there's one gentleman in the elevator. We walk in and uh, we introduce ourselves, and he asks, well, what are you here for? So, well, you know, this might sound a little weird, but we're here to try to find somebody in the legislator, legislature to talk to about this thing called nuclear electromagnetic pulse. And he says, what? This is he said, you know who it is. He said, wait a minute. My job was to secure the Minuteman II intercontinental ballistic missile against nuclear EMP in the 1960s. Yep. And Dr. Price said, you were on that project? So you must know this scientist and this scientist. Yep. And the gentleman says, yeah, I knew him. That was State Senator Bob Hall. So, so Peter is like, Dr. Pry is just blown away, right? Here's a, a senator who is actually an expert. Yeah. And Peter, Peter looks over at me, and I said, I didn't have a plan, but so I know <laughs> who did. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So it was an answer to prayer. So Tracy met you down there that day, and or soon, yeah, soon after, yeah, and she, introduced you, because I know she's worked right. on that issue for years. So I'm going to fast forward, because I know, I mean, Bob Hall, Senator Bob Hall has been working on this issue, and he works diligently and explains things to people, and he tries to lay out, and just for our listeners, if you haven't ever thought about this issue, because I had this reaction when I first heard this was a big issue, just saying, well, you know, I used to go camping, you know, I camped a lot in college and, and you know, did two-week backpacking. I, you know, we could live without power, but you don't really realize that, in fact, the very conservative and careful estimates are if we really had the electric grid in America go out like we couldn't restore power within, and it went on for a long time, I mean, you can start to list the things that could happen. But the short story was, the estimate, at least from a very uh, prominent organization, was within about a year, 90% of America would be dead. Because you can't heat, you can't air condition, you can't get food, you can't get gasoline, you can't, you can't, there won't be food in the stores, there won't be anything. You're just stuck where you are and you can't get, you, you can't get basic, you can't get medications. Everything we have, we have developed in our beautiful American society relies on electricity. So did you work at right. this session in this, on the grid issue with Bob we, Hall? Every single session I fly in and I help Senator Hall and any, any lawmaker who wants to address the issue. We testify before your legislature every year. We hammer them with truth. Uh, but, you know, the, the electric utility lobby is very powerful, and uh, they've got deep pockets. And, and thus far, um, unfortunately, it hasn't resulted in, in a whole lot of legislative victories. 
But I do want your viewers and your listeners to know that it doesn't mean that we haven't had some wins. And so I'll give you an example. Probably one of the most innovative solutions ever developed to protect substations against EMP mm-hmm. was developed right here in Texas by Centerpoint Energy and Siemens together. And it was because in the very first legislative session when Senator Hall brought this up, the executives at Centerpoint saw it and said, gosh, we better get ahead of this. If we're going to be required one day to do this, we need to figure out how. And so it's created innovation and and it's created more solutions. It's just not yet a requirement. And so unfortunately, the, the, uh, the history has been such that the industry has fought back against it. Uh, they don't want it to be required. Uh, but in reality, um, you know, I think it, once Americans understand the gravity of the threat, they they would be okay with paying a little bit more for electricity to make sure that it's protected. Of course they would. I, I you know I tell you the capacity of media to kind of give it EBGB. Oh, they they characterize some issues as well. These are these are kind of far right concerns. Isn't really a problem not recognizing what it would mean if you truly didn't have electricity. And every time I have this conversation on the show with Senator Bob Hall or Tracy Bradford, I always think, what if we did have a problem? And those industry executives who fought resolving, I mean, securing the grid in various ways, I mean, what would they say then? Well, I mean, what would they think of themselves then? They just, it is a money thing, of course, but it's also for legislators, it is a decision that this isn't worth fighting for and other things are. Yeah, I mean, they should ask themselves what they thought about the 246 Texans that died in Winter Storm Uri and the hundred-plus billion dollars of economic loss from a three-day blackout, right? And that's after a 1989 blackout and a 2011 blackout from the same thing, extreme cold weather, where the industry promised that they had fixed it. So, you know, that that should have been a significant wake-up call. Uh, and um, And so... Yeah, that, that's an argument we're making right now, in fact, about the people who are responsible for approving the regulations of the grid. Uh, will they be held accountable when there's a catastrophic blackout? And right now, I mean, I'll tell you, Debbie, uh, it, hopefully it'll be published later today. I have an, an op-ed about, this is at the federal level, not the state level, but at the federal level, the physical security standard, right? I mean, people can go around right now and see substations and see that, you know, they're unguarded. There's no ballistic protection. You can shoot the transformers up just like Moore County, North Carolina. It happened in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. 44,000 customers. And that was a no notice outage, right? Winter storm Uri, we knew it was coming. Hurricanes, you know, that are coming. A physical attack on the grid is a no notice outage, which means that we all have to be much better prepared if the, if the electricity immediately went off. And so the, in the wake of that Moore County, North Carolina attack, the federal government told the industry to, to re-examine their physical security standard. Does it need to be strengthened at all? And predictably, they came back and said, no, it's sufficient. And so we're making, we have petitioned the government at the federal level over and over and over to strengthen these standards. The industry put, pushes back and, and the federal regulators just continue to allow it. And so that's the op-ed today basically asked the question, okay, with all of this evidence that we've laid out for a decade of the vulnerabilities and the industry being on record, pushing back against it, and the federal regulators not taking action, who who will be held responsible? Yeah. But honestly, Debbie, we're the ones that bear the responsibility. We the people ones. We the people. We the people. Yeah. It's gonna, none of those other people are going to help be held accountable, right? 
And so th we have to wake up just like so many other areas that our republic is, is being, uh, you know, attacked in so many different ways. It's up to we the people. And so my, the thing I would encourage people is to be more prepared uh, for, for blackouts and it be more involved. I mean, you know, if the people are being heard, uh, if they are making their voices heard, uh, at least to counterbalance uh, the power of the industry lobby, or if people have time and, and they want to help, they can, you know, research how much money these lobbyists are paying the, the, the elected officials and start to expose that. that. That's all the sort of pressure that's going to need to be there to get them to change their behavior. Yeah. Based on having watched a number of issues at the Texas legislature, they did every session they do some good things. They, they do some good things. Sure. But it seems like they respond to pressure. I mean, it's basically they have to feel like they might lose their seat or they might lose money. If they, if, they, if they think they can go forward and not take a step that will bring them mockery and ridicule by somebody and they can just kind of stay a safe course, they, that, was, that is the, the kind of the go-to position. Stay the safe course. Don't get out there and get on, on record. This is why Senator Bob Hall is the, uh, you know, there are a few others, but he is the most deeply respected Senate, uh, Texas state senator on this issue and many others because he doesn't get pushed around by the mockery mob. Right. He doesn't get pushed around by people who want to, oh, it's a little far right crazy, you know, can you just get here? Let's just talk about. And the things that they do talk about, I mean, and given the many dangers facing the people of Texas, it can seem pretty frustrating. They, they don't deal with the real issues. So um, I do want to ask you, and I didn't ask you ahead of time, but do you know anything about the Maui situation where the um, what happened, there, there was a, a hurricane sure. and many people concerned it was actually a directed sure. weapon, directed something or other. I don't know the name of it, but the gist of it was that damage was so catastrophic in Maui. Do you have any knowledge about that? So the things I can talk about, uh, so I, I did publish uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about the Maui fires. And of course, when you're talking about the Wall Street Journal, you have to only write what you know, right? And so what I could tell at that time was that electric infrastructure did appear to be at least a culprit, if not the culprit, for a lot of the fires. You could see where the fire started and the electric disturbances. Uh, there was film of electric transmission lines down, catching the, the, the grass on fire with these winds. And so uh, that to me seemed like a very real thing, that the, the grid itself, um, it, that infrastructure most likely started a lot of the fires. Okay, so that's one piece of it. What I had argued in that Wall Street Journal op-ed was I, I asked the question, like, if there were whistleblower protections for electric utility industry employees, could they have prevented this? And the reason I, I, I asked that is I went back to California, some of the fires in California. There's a, a, a PG&E, um, that's a company in California, Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E lineman, Todd Hearns, who he tried to blow the whistle on some technology as a lineman, they're having him install this stuff on the grid. He said, look, this can, ca this can cause you know, forest fires. Well, they fired him. And within a year, the campfire killed 84 California citizens. Oh, wow. Okay? okay. And so what I was arguing in the wake of the Maui fires was if there were whistleblower protections and there were employees in the Maui, uh, you know, electric utilities there that could see that there were issues with the, the infrastructure, could that have prevented it? Now. What I didn't talk about in that op-ed, because I can't prove it, is a very significant suspicion that I have that there may have also been foul play in the electric infrastructure uh, coming down. And so uh, 
it's it's well documented. In fact, we've br brought this to the federal regulators to show them in the in the doctrinal manuals of some of these, uh, like the how-to guides for some of these eco-terrorists and Antifa-type groups, they talk about something called monkey wrenching, where they go out in remote areas and they just loosen the bolts, take the nuts off the top of the bolts on the bottoms of those towers. And it doesn't affect them at the time. But as soon as the wind blows, they all fall down, right? And so what I thought was very uh, odd was how much of that all failed all in a very short period of time. And it just seemed like there could have been foul play. And I think it should be investigated. There's a lot of other really weird things about that that I think need to be investigated, right? I've had people ask about directed energy weapons. I don't know of, of any uh, type of directed energy weapon that could create uh, a fire like that, right? doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just, I don't know about it, right? But what I do know is that we need whistleblower protection for electric utility employees, and we need to be investigating these things as though it could have been foul play, if that yeah. makes sense. One point that people are making, and I don't know about these things either. It's not my educational or, science or you know, experience background, but you know, the suspicion about the directed energy weapon was in part because of the heat of the fire, that the fire in Maui, it happened so quickly, number one. And number two, it melted cars. It melted things at such a high level that are metal that people questioned, could a fire just originating or starting because of a hurricane actually get that hot? Do you have any, yeah. I don't know if you would know anything about that. I don't. It's, not, it's just not my subject matter expertise. Yeah. I think it should, it should definitely be looked into. I mean, yeah. the whole thing needs to be investigated from start to finish. You know, oh, of course. From how it started to how the, the response to, I mean, it is very, um, very Why the sirens didn't go off. Right. Why the sirens didn't go off. Why roads were blocked. Why, right. yeah, the, many, and, many and things. And why there's all these, you know, purchases of land all of a sudden by all these powerful people. You know, I mean, yes. it's, it's really... Um, it, it just it needs to be investigated as thoroughly as, as possible. Well, I know the people, the uh, citizens of Maui would like that. Most Americans would like that. I, I hope it happens. Okay, one of the quick thing I'm going to get to. Oh, my gosh, time is flying here. Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to just save this for my next segment. I did want to compliment just overall. It's interesting for you to take on the job of national security uh, uh, at uh, the Center for Security Policy because the range of national security issues is huge. Another one, which I will get into in my next segment, has to do with, uh, again, it's Frank Gaffney, and he's kind of locking arms with other groups or similar people uh, having to do with the World Health Organization oh, yeah. and their uh, apparent our capitulation to the World Health Organization um, about um, who's in charge when pandemics come along. Right. But I think we don't have time to do that. So this year, you have to come back, okay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you. So people want to follow your work. If you quickly, again, tell our listeners how to find you in the Center for Security yeah, Policy. Yeah, so the Center for Security Policy, just briefly, securefreedom.org is our website. And you can subscribe for our daily brief updates and, and get you know our analysis in your in your inbox every day. So securefreedom.org. And, uh, you know, we, Debbie, we didn't talk about this. I, and I'm just grateful for the support that we've gotten, you know, in Texas and Dallas uh, you know, we, we don't take funding from the government at any level, from any foreign organization or any special interest group. I've had companies that do things that could protect the grid try to offer me money, and I've turned them down. So, look, this is for the public interest. And so for those that want to support, we're grateful for that, too. I'm glad you said that. We've hosted, as I think you know, in fact, you've been to our home. For the, I'm very we, grateful. Yeah, we hosted our at our home uh, many events for Center for Security Policy. And when I introduced whoever the speaker was for the evening, I would always just say, you know, these people are doing things that not only 
or protect all of us and benefit all of us, but most of us don't really know how to do. We don't, we're never, none of all of us are going to be experts on North Korea and China and, and Cuba and Venezuela and all these places that are potential hotspots, Iran, Iraq. So these are Americans who are actually doing things that protect all of America. So if you are inclined to support organizations, Center for Security Policy, fabulous organization. I mean, just so straight arrow, well-educated, well, people who are experienced in the arenas where they uh, are engaged in policy formulation. So just a great group. So Tommy Waller, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Great to see you, sir. Okay, I'm going to try to do, um, as my mother used to say, I'm going to talk fast, uh, because the show, uh, we do only have uh, 15 minutes left, left, or maybe slightly less. And I want to hit two of the topics if I can. Um, so one, I just call this Pirate Money, Texas House Failed the People. And I'll just tell you very quickly that uh, a gentleman who's been on my show numerous times, Kevin Freeman, uh, he is, a, he is a, the host of Economic War Room. It's on Blaze TV. Uh, he's an author. And he has a new book out. And this is just, I mean, it is vital reading. I wanna, I'm going to tell you very quickly what it is. This is what it looks like. It's called Pirate Money. But the subtitle is also really, really good. Pirate Money. And it's called Discovering the Founder's Hidden Plan for Economic Justice and Defeating the Great Reset. And the reason I want to talk about that is this. You know, some threats to freedom you can see. Obviously, we had a military invasion. Some threats, we were just talking with Tommy Waller, you have, you know, you can, you can have Antifa or other lunatic leftist people attacking the power grid, attacking a power station. He mentioned the brief briefly the episode in North Carolina where some, you know, hooligans, whoever they were, criminals, uh, just fired guns at a secure, uh, at a place that is a provider of power knocked out power for a period of time for 44,000 people. And our, so securing the grid is a basic thing that needs to happen. Another thing that needs to happen to, to secure America is to protect the American people from what the left is doing to this country by its proposed central bank digital currency, CBDC. I've talked about it in the show before, but central bank digital currency is just the idea that instead of private Bitcoin. It's about money. It's about how you exchange value. So the Bitcoin exists. Private companies created this idea that instead of having to carry around cash or even have to have you know, banks where money sits, you could just have Bitcoin or other forms of digital currency. Well, the Biden administration announced early in this, early several years ago, and it's, it's in place now, their attempted experiment at essentially taking control of all of your money. I am not exaggerating. You have to listen to how this would work. Central bank digital currency is a concept the Biden administration not only floated, but is now investigating. It's actually been undertaken by several large banks. And the story is no longer will you have your money in a bank and you know that you worked hard every week or month and you put some percentage of your savings away or you, and you save money and you built it up and you plan to spend it on X for your retirement because you need a new car next year, because you want to put a pool in, because you got to send your kids to college. We Americans are entitled as a free market country to earn money and then choose to save it and spend it as we wish. This is part of, this is part of freedom in America. Well, what central bank digital currency is, it is not only a policy of the Biden administration being pushed but it's also tied in to the globalist World Economic Forum agenda, the idea that eventually all you silly little peasants out there, you little meaningless people out there, you don't really need control of your own money and you don't really own your own money, that you really ought to have everything that you 
yet you have a value. Instead of money in your wallet or balance in your checking and savings account, all of your money should be essentially under the control of the federal government. This is not a, you know, in the future sometime they may propose this. This is actually underway in America. Underway and the, the potential for harm to your freedom, the future of your freedom, your capacity to work hard, save your money, and do as you choose is directly threatened by this policy. The book that I'm talking about was written by Kevin Freeman, a brilliant economist, Pirate Money. I, you can get it on Amazon. In fact, on our show links, we always post our show links. It, I link to Amazon there. So you can find the right book, Pirate Money, Discovering the Founder's Hidden Plan for Economic Justice and Defeating the Great Reset. He's making the point that if we can get a counter that we, the people, create, that the actual citizens who want freedom and want to control our own money, if we can get a system we create, it's part of pushing back against the Great Reset and against what the left is doing. So I just can hardly encourage you strongly enough to get this book. The other great thing about Kevin Freeman's writing is he's written uh, numerous books and been on my show to talk about them is it's easy to follow. I mean, I, I will get lost. I, I do try to read a lot of things that are outside of my <laughs> educational background and necessarily understand. And so you can sometimes read things, you go, I'm not sure I'm following this. You will follow this. I urge you to not only buy the book, but buy it for people who really are, are still being duped by central bank digital currency, duped by the idea that, you know, really this would be much more convenient. I mean, who wants to carry around lots of cash? It'll just all be on a card. The concept that Kevin Freeman is pushing and which the Texas legislature completely dropped the ball on is a simple concept of allowing Americans, as contemplated by our founders, contemplated in the time of our founding by our founders in the Constitution, is to use gold, actual gold, as a form of digital currency. Or as my friend said, it's like liquid gold. But the concept, if you have money in a bank, it's just a number you get in your bank statement. And if the government says one day, actually, we're taking charge, central bank digital currency, don't worry, we see how much money you have. Now it's under our control. And so then it's under your control in a million ways you can't even begin to foresee how much the government could do to take away your freedom, to decide that you can't really get access to your money because after all, you know, you didn't get the latest vaccination, which is being required by the World Health Organization. You didn't, you didn't comply with whatever climate change lunacy they've thought up. The concept of what Kevin Freeman's pushing, which is essentially having gold be digital currency. So you have gold, you purchase gold, you, you get you go to the bank and they purchase gold, but you own gold. And the gold has value, has held value in America and around the world far better than any currency. So we have, you have gold, it's in the bank, and you've got your credit card, you've got your debit card, and when you go out and spend money, like you're at the restaurant, you're at the grocery store, wherever you are spending money using a credit card, your credit card is tied to the gold that you own sitting in your bank. So all that happens is the bank then says, well, the value of gold you had was X, and it will fluctuate because of the value of gold. But, you know, since you spent X at the restaurant and you went grocery shopping, so your valuation of gold is debited. What you have in the, in the account in the bank is debited. It is a way to circumvent the Great Reset. It is a way to circumvent the Biden administration's central bank digital currency communist policy. It is a way to hold on to freedom. 
Money is far more. Money and the capacity to spend money is far more about freedom and far less about economics. People like Biden and the World Economic Forum people understand if they can control your money, your access to your money, they can control you. And so this was a simple plan and a major, major failure of the Texas state legislature in not passing this now at this vital time as we see the Biden team marching down the path of creating central bank digital currency. And the other thing he does a great job in this book is explaining, just giving you examples of things. It's even hard to foresee all that might occur, all that might occur as a result of this, um, this effort by the federal government. This is a Biden administration I am not lightly using the word communist. When the government can control your money and you don't own it, the government owns it, that's communism. That's where the left is headed with this. It is not a minor concern. It's not an exaggerated concern. Buy the book, read it, buy 10 copies, give them to your friends, help them get enthused and really ready to fight this issue uh, in America and push it in every state legislature in uh, America. Okay, final topic. I called it shame. I, I gave it a long title because I had fun with it. Shameless backfiring leftist belligerents, um, Hunter Hillary and the Trump show trials. I'm just going to give you a quick summary of this because we're almost out of time. The left, in its endless quest for power, central bank digital currency is one means, and it's why leftists and ignorant people in the Texas legislature could not get on board to fix this, but leftists seek power. It is a rule like gravity. If I hold this pen, let go, it'll fall down this table because that's what gravity is, is a law of gravity. The law of the left is all they ever seek is power and more control over your life. It is, what is the meaning of their existence to control you. They sell their policies of control by saying they care more, they care a lot, they really, really care about you, and other people don't care, but they care. And so this is, it, it's sold as, as control, and it's sold as, I mean, it's sold as we're just trying to help you, we're just being really, really friendly people, and, um, and we're, we're trying to think of loving policies to take care of you. That's how the left sells everything they do. But what they're really trying to do is take control, and they will do anything to do that. They will lie. They will, they will be aggressive in accusing you of things, suing people, when they're the ones who are, who are at fault. So I wanted to quickly tell you, I found this the most mind-blowing thing. So Hillary Clinton, um, you know, as everyone paying attention understands, everyone paying attention understands, Hillary Clinton and her campaign to be president in 2016 along with her campaign team, the Perkins Coie Law Firm and Fusion GPS, they cooked up the entire Russia collusion hoax. The dossier was a fake. The collusion didn't exist. It was an entirely cooked up by Hillary lie. And it's been proven. It's been shown. It's why after months and months of investigation, the FBI had to say, hey, there's actually nothing to this. Sorry about that. So this is the audacity of the left, and it's also a measure of their relentless pursuit for power. So Hillary, rather than being ashamed of the fact that she was caught doing that, her campaign was caught doing that, she was caught smashing you know, SIM cards from phones and destroying files. The fact that she engaged in things that no one else gets away with, and everyone paying attention knows there's no shame. There's no acknowledgement, no shame. She is out there in an interview with Jen Psaki over the weekend talking, warning America that, you know, if Trump runs again in 2024, the Russians are going to do it again. They Just like they did in the past, they will try to steal our election. 
the the the, la the shamelessness. It, you could you could you're speechless. She's the one that cooked it up. Everybody knows it. And she's out there staring at the camera, talking on her show, Jen Psaki, saying, well, yeah, you know, the Russians did it before. Might do it again. I, I mean, the shamelessness is mind-blowing. Similar shamelessness with Hunter Biden. You know, I'll tell you, Hunter Biden's laptop, the famous laptop, which was used to protect his dad and allow his dad to be elected, hidden from the American people. So the Hunter Biden laptop contains, as we've had Garrett Ziegler on the show, who has taken the entire laptop reproduce it in a very thick book. I've got a whole bunch of it in my house. But, I mean, a reprint of the entire Biden laptop, all the emails, all the disgusting, lurid pictures, and the emails reflecting all the money changing hands and the affirmation of the CCP and all sorts of other people, nefarious characters, funneling money through Hunter Biden over to the Biden family. It's all out there. Instead of be ashamed, embarrassed, take credit, take, you know, take responsibility, Hunter Biden is suing everyone involved. He's suing the owner of the, la the uh, laptop repair shop, and he is suing Garrett Ziegler, who published what is only obviously true. It's his own laptop. He's now suing Rudy Giuliani. And I'm getting at the point, there's no one holding him accountable, not even our GOP majority in Washington. And his answer to having his nefarious life exposed to the public is as any leftist answer would be. File a lawsuit, accuse, get belligerent, go after other people because now they know who I am. I mean, the, the, and the, the quest for power on the left, whether it's Hillary or Biden or it's really Obama running the whole country, it will never end unless the American voters make it end. They will not stop seeking to control your life and all of it. I have more to say on that, but we're almost out of time. I'll just very quickly throw in that it turns out there's some new polling showing that the more the left goes after Trump, they now have, you know, four pieces of criminal litigation against him. And now uh, it appears there's even some contemplation of bringing international charges against him. But the four pieces of litigation against President Trump, you know, he's got the, uh, you know, he's got the woman, uh, the pole dancer person he paid uh, or allegedly paid off. Uh, what is Mar-a-Lago documents? Doesn't matter that Democrat presidents had more documents, less secure, and, and but they're allowed to do that because their names are Obama or their name is Biden. But Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump, he's a subject of criminal prosecution over those documents. Same with Jack Smith and the whole January 6th prosecution uh, related to the January 6th episode in Washington and the Georgia indictment. And just remind yourself, we talked about the beginning of this show. Beginning of the show, the first five, we had on, we made reference to it. Patrick Byrne is now explaining to people that the DOJ now knows, they know, because they're going after Smartmatic, that electronic voting machines are not only hackable, but riggable, and apparently were rigged in the Philippine election. But nothing about this, this understanding of that fact seems to slightly penetrate the DOJ and say, you know, now that we know that, maybe we should rethink all these prosecutions, especially prosecutions of lawyers involved, on the, and because January 6th happened because the election was stolen. That's why January 6th happened, because the election of 2020 was stolen and nobody do anything about it. And I'll just close this, this show because I'm past time. But I want to close by saying the American people are watching. And what's happened the more the left goes after these show trials against Trump, the more the Biden administration acts like a communist government 
and goes after the previous leaders, which is only the most evil, nefarious leaders in world history have done. They go after and indict the previous administration, the previous leader. This is conduct we do not tolerate in America. It is unprecedented in America. And everyone, the closer you get, the more you understand these cases, you realize there's nothing to them at all, nothing to the cases in which Trump is being prosecuted, especially as you compare his, the facts in his case with the facts of other, related to other people who are not being prosecuted because they have a D by their name. It's actually finally penetrating even among Democrats because new polling is showing. More Democrats are getting a little worried, think what in the heck is the Biden administration is doing? And new polling out by the ABC News, ABC News Washington Post released a poll showing that now President Trump has a commanding 10-point lead over Joe Biden in the 2024 presidential election. And you'd think they would step back and say, okay, maybe we better get off, you know, attacking him all the time. Maybe we better stop all these indictments. Understand, they're all related. It doesn't matter if one came from a state court in Georgia and one came from a prosecutor from the DOJ's office and one came from some prosecutor in New York. It's all the leftist mindset. They cannot have President Trump eligible and able to serve as president because he knows what they are. He exposes them and he is who the people want. And they know this. They are, there's the determination to have power and control over America is so radical, so extreme, so relentless. They'll continue going after Trump even when they can see that all it is doing is driving his poll numbers up. But the American people need to be very, very vigilant at this time in America to recognize the left will do anything to destroy the capacity of Donald Trump to serve as our president and, and to be elected in 2024. He's obviously going to be the winner of the Republican primary, barring, you know, death, barring, barring his absolute inability. He will win the primary. I, the polls just keep increasing and showing that. It's who the people want. And this is what this election in 2024 is far bigger than R versus D. It is, it is America going down the path that Biden and his communist policies are bringing to this country, whether it's CBDC, what, shut, shutting down your, the control of your money, sh uh, letting our borders get flooded, shutting down your right to free speech, shutting down freedom in America. That's what they're doing. That's our future or a future of freedom and a restoration of America, as Donald Trump plans to do, and a restoration of the rule of law. It's a stark, stark election, a stark election about what the future, what is going to be the future of freedom in America. Are we going to have a future of freedom in America? And the American people are wising up. And I hope, I hope that the Democrat side can recognize this isn't working, going after Trump again and again and again and again. I don't know, though, folks, because to them, all they know, all the only MO they've ever had, the left has ever had, is more seizing, more seizing of power more attacking their political opponents in unjustified ways, more brutality, more cruelty, more control, less freedom for the people. It's the only MO they know. The American people must stand up against what the left is doing to this country. I close the show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today. Uh, and it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Anyway, we started our show today, uh, Criminal Referral of Smartmatic, 
Patrick Byrne is reporting the U.S. Attorney DOJ in Miami has made a criminal referral of Smartmatic regarding the Philippine elections, alleges purposeful $500 million or so overpayment by Filipino official to Smartmatic, part of the overpayment alleged as a personal kickback to the Filipino official, part of the overpayment alleged via Berm as payment to rig the 2016 Philippine elections. Links of Smartmatic to voting systems used in the USA are extensive. Again, listen to Patrick Bernie learn all about that. Rigging of the 2016 Philippine election is acknowledged by the DOJ. This signals, via Patrick Byrne, the DOJ's awareness of the ability of Smartmatic systems to rig any election. Mainstream media so far reporting this as a money laundering bribery case. Byrne believes it signals the whole U.S. 2020 election fraud denial house of cards is about to collapse. Stay tuned for further developments. This is hugely significant. And pirate money, Texas House failed the people. The Texas House did not act on urgent legislative priorities that benefit all Texans. Gold back currency that we were talking about with a pirate money story, a simple solution to an imminent threat to our freedom. Border security, election integrity, EMP grid protection didn't touch any of that, making the Paxton impeachment more starkly, obviously, political and egregious. No due process, no actual evidence ever produced to back up allegations. Late session ambush, a contrived political hit job. Texans are restless about their state government, and they should be. And finally, shameless, backfiring leftist belligerents, Hunter Hillary and the Trump show trials. Hunter sues people over his own laptop. From laptop repair store owner John Mac, John Paul Mac Isaac, to publisher of the contents, Garrett Ziegler, to Rudy Giuliani, no apparent shame or acknowledgement or responsibility, and no consequence so far to him from the GOP-controlled House. Time to see some action there. Hillary Clinton, with not an iota of apparent shame or recognition of her hypocrisy, of her hypocrisy warned that Russia and Putin will likely again interfere in America's 2024 election. No mention of her campaign's direct involvement with Fusion GPS and Perkins Coie and the fake Trump dossier and the Russia collusion hoax. The four-pronged attack by criminal indictment against President Trump appears to be backfiring because polls show his going up in popularity, but never doubt how far the leftists running America will go to keep him out of office. Leftists everywhere are shameless, relentless, and always seeking power. We must defend our republic. On Thursday this week, our, our very special guest joining us in studio, Jason Isaac, a brilliant expert on climate change, energy, and, and plus he's entertaining and fun. He's a great guest. So do tune in Thursday. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you?